You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Every Bible school student that I went to school with was required at some time in each semester to do a major service activity. In my second year, I joined a team that, um, who, whose responsibility it was to go and do some major outreach on an Indian reserve or a gospel mission or something like that or at a school. And we would go and we would put on a big evangelistic event and spend a weekend ministering. And the time for our evangelistic trip, our service ministry was coming up and it was, we were to leave on a Friday morning. And we were going to an Indian reservation, and we were to do a Friday night youth service. And then Saturday we had a couple meetings, and we were to be out amongst the people and helping the local missionaries that were there on the reserve uh, reach the people, the natives, for Christ. And then on Sunday morning we had a worship service, and we were going to come back on that Sunday evening. And it was about a 10-hour trip, and I had high expectations for my time in the service ministry there. Uh, I expected that we were going to have about 10 hours in the van with all of my friends from the Bible college, and that was going to be a blast. And then we were going to show up there, and we were going to see natives turning to Christ in droves and have a phenomenal ministry there, and then come back, and we would be rejoicing, and we'd have another 10 hours of fun time in the van with my fellow Bible school students. And I expected that we were going to be so successful and so dynamic at our time on the reserve that the following Monday, all of the provincial newspapers would read, Revival amongst Indians, well, it'd be revival amongst Native Americans, well, probably revival amongst First Nations people sparked by students. And they wouldn't be able to put Bible school students because they had needed to shorten the first part of that in order to get it all on a headline. So that's what the headline would read. And um, my picture would be in the newspaper, and I would have a couple quotes in there, and everybody would be so thankful for all of the impact that we had had, and it was a miserable trip. That's what my expectations are, but it was a miserable trip. We were to leave early, early, early on a Friday morning. We were missing classes for that day. It was an excused absence, and so the the cook got up, and he cooked our team breakfast, and there was about ten of us. He cooked our team breakfast that morning, and it was way earlier than any of the other students got breakfast, and we were responsible to buy our own lunch. So we all piled into the school van and started off toward the reserve. I was a poor Bible school student. I didn't have money to buy lunch. And every time we stopped for gas, everybody would pile out of the van and they would go into the convenience store and they would buy chips and candy bars and pops and snacks and all of this munchies and bring it back into the van. And thankfully, the rumbling of my stomach was drowned out by the sound of people crunching on their snacks the whole way there. So nobody knew how hungry I was. And we got to the um, reserve and we were to have dinner that evening with the missionary family that was there. Now, God bless this young couple and I know I'll see them in heaven and glory when I get there. And so I mean no ill toward them at all because I know that um, their intentions were good and their um, desire for us was good. We showed up there and I was starved. I had eaten at 5 o'clock in the morning and we left and I hadn't had lunch. I hadn't had any snacks and I was starving. And I walked in I could smell the, the food cooking. And, and they lived in a place that was, was very dirty. They had about 15 cats and about twice as many dogs. And, and uh, that's where we were to sleep and that's where we were to eat and... One of the students asked what was for dinner as we heard we smelled it cooking and they said goulash. 
Oh, goulash. I love goulash. I couldn't wait for goulash. For those of you who don't know what goulash is, it's hamburger, macaroni, and tomato soup. So they came time for dinner, and I walked up there, and I grabbed myself a big bowl of goulash. It was a little runnier than I was used to goulash being, more like really almost thick soup. But I thought this was going to be delicious. It was um, probably a three-gallon pot of food, of goulash, mostly macaroni. There was probably one can of tomato soup that had been dumped in there, so it almost had a tomato flavor to it. And uh, you'd have to really search to find the hamburger in there, but we did manage to pull out a couple of pieces of hamburger and get them into our bowls. And I sat down and pulled out a couple of hairs out of the bowl of goulash and spooned through the rest to make sure there were no more hairs in there and pulled out a couple more hairs from the bowl of goulash and was looking around at my classmates who were just gobbling it in. And I thought, you know, there's something wrong with me that I'm so picky even though I was so hungry. And I took a bite of it. It was unlike... I have never, I've never tasted anything like, nothing that tastes like that has ever gone past my lips. It tasted like, if you can, you know how a wet dog smells? That's what it tasted like. It felt like I was licking the fur of a wet dog. It had that smell to it. I did not eat, that was one of the best weight loss programs I've ever been on. I did not eat that whole weekend till I got back to the school because that was, what was served, that and some of the other food on the reserve. I had very high expectations for my time there, and I was crushed by my time there. I don't think Paul and Barnabas harbored any illusions as to what they were to face on their missionary journeys. In Acts chapter 13 and 14, I don't think Paul and Barnabas thought this was going to be a cakewalk. I don't thought, think that they had an impression in their mind that this was going to be easy, that it was going to be fun that it was going to be without affliction and without suffering and without having to endure a lot for the Lord. That is what they expected because isn't that what the Lord had promised Paul? I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake, is what the Lord said to Ananias. And Paul knew that that was what he had to look forward to. Paul knew, as he said in Acts chapter 20, verse 23 to the Ephesian elders, I go to Jerusalem and I do not know what's going to happen to me, but I know this that in every city to which I go, the Holy Spirit testifies to me that bonds and afflictions await me. That's what I get to look forward to, Paul says. I don't know exactly what's going to happen to me in Jerusalem, but I know it involves bonds and afflictions. Every city that he went to, that's what he got to look forward to. And when he came to Iconium in Acts chapter 14, and that plot was underway, that mob movement to stone him and to mistreat Paul and Barnabas, I do not think that their reaction to the gospel and their desire to kill him took him by surprise at all. I think he expected it. I think he anticipated it. And so he leaves Iconium and he goes to Lystra knowing that in every city that he goes to, bonds and afflictions await him. Now, review Paul's missionary journey so far. Beginning in Acts chapter 13, he sails to the island of Cyprus where he is verbally opposed by Elemas, the false prophet, the Jewish magician, the sorcerer who was in the court of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. He sails from there and he lands on the shore. No sooner does he get there than he comes down with some physical ailment that drives him north into Galatia, and it's then that John Mark abandons him and goes back to Jerusalem. He gets up into Pisidian Antioch in the synagogue there, and he preaches, and he is blasphemed and opposed there. 
And he leaves Antioch and he goes to Iconium where they plot to stone him and he has to leave Iconium to save his life. And he moves on to Lystra. That's quite a travel, isn't it? Does Paul sound like the type of guy you'd want to go on a vacation with? Yet that's what he endured. He expected it. He anticipated it. Do you remember after he got saved, he was in uh, Damascus and the king of the region of Damascus wanted his head and he had to let him out through the wall and a hole and let him down in a basket and he went to Jerusalem where he was only there for two weeks and then the Jews in the synagogues tried to kill him. From the moment Paul got saved, there were people who were after his head. And in Iconium, those Jews figured something out rather early. The only way to shut this man up, the only way to stop him is to kill him. And so that's what they set out to do. And he flees and he goes to the city of Lystra. And that is where we pick it up in verse 8. Paul is in the city of Lystra, having fleed Iconium because they have plotted his stoning and his bad treatment. Luke says, there they continued to preach the gospel in these regions. At verse 8, they're in Lystra. And I want you to notice three events in this section that we're looking at, verses 8 through 18. First, we're going to notice the miracle that Paul performs. Then we're going to see the mix-up that ensues as a result of the miracle. And then we're going to look at the message that Paul gets to deliver because of that mix-up. First, the miracle. At Lystra. Now, Lystra is about 25 miles south of Iconium that they have left. They've gone to Lystra. In Lystra, it doesn't say that they went into a synagogue. Now, everywhere that Paul and Barnabas have gone so far on the journey, Luke tells us they went into the synagogue and preached Christ. When they get to Lystra, there's no going into the synagogue. Do you know why that is? Because as I mentioned last week, Lystra is sort of that backwater town. There's not a large Jewish population in Lystra. It's very pagan, very idolatrous, very superstitious, very rural, very rustic, rustic, very wild and rude population that exists in Lystra. Paul and Barnabas take the gospel to there. There's not enough Jews in the town to have a synagogue, so there's no synagogue. So they're involved in street preaching, street witnessing, street evangelism. They don't go into the synagogue. But although there's a small Jewish population there, not enough to have a synagogue, but there are some Jews there, and there's one very significant Jew who's in Lystra. And you have to turn to Acts chapter 16, verse 1, to see who that is. Paul, on his second missionary journey, goes north up through Derby, and he lands in Lystra. Verse Chapter 16, verse 1, Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy. It's in Lystra that Paul meets Timothy. Now, Paul, when he wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 10 to 11, he said to Timothy, You know well my patience, my endurance, my love, my faith, my perseverance, and the sufferings and persecutions such as happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. Timothy, you know my sufferings. You know what I suffered in Antioch and Iconium and Lystra. How did Timothy know that? Because Timothy was in Lystra. And it is sometime during Paul's stay here in Lystra in Acts chapter 14 that he is able to lead Timothy to the Lord. Because Timothy is living there with his mother and with his grandmother. Paul calls him his son in the faith. So Paul leads him to the Lord during his first missionary journey during this time in Lystra. He moves on, and when Paul comes back through, there's this young disciple there named Timothy, who was well spoken of by all of the brethren, Acts chapter 16 says, in Lystra and in Derbia and in Iconium. This is where Paul meets Timothy. Uh, Paul makes mention in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 5, that 
Timothy was a believer, obviously, but there, Paul makes mention that there was a sincere faith that dwelt in his mother Eunice and in his grandmother Lois. Acts chapter 16 tells us that Timothy's mother was a believer, but his father was a Greek, indicating that his father wasn't a believer. We have no record that Timothy's father ever became a believer. But Timothy's mother was a believer. Timothy's grandmother, Lois, was a believer. And Timothy was a believer. Now this is how Paul meets Timothy. He comes into Lystra. Timothy is there. Sometime during his stay there, Timothy becomes a believer. And this is the environment out of which Timothy comes. He has an unsaved father, a saved mother, and a saved grandmother who have taught him the Holy Scripture. Second Timothy chapter 3, Paul said to Timothy, From your childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise unto salvation through a faith which is in Christ Jesus. So, without a synagogue, without any kind of local support group, without any spiritual leadership in the home whatsoever, Timothy's mom had trained and discipled young Timothy in the Scriptures. So that when the Apostle Paul came to town, bringing to them the message of Christ from the Old Testament, their hearts have been prepared by the Word to receive their Savior, the Messiah. Such is the power of a godly mother, who even when everything is stacked against her, she teaches the Scriptures to her children. From your childhood, you've known the Scriptures, which have made you wise unto salvation. Without a godly father, without any kind of godly Jewish influence in the society in the city of Lystra that we can see, she discipled young Timothy. So that's why Lystra is significant, because Timothy is here. So just keep that in your mind, because we're going to come across Timothy again in Acts chapter 16, because he ends up taking off with Paul and, and going with him and becomes a traveling companion. So at Lystra, verse 8 sa says, A man was sitting there who had no strength in his feet, lame from his mother's womb, who had never walked. Now, Paul's involved in street ministry. He's out amongst the people. This is not in a synagogue. This is amongst the crowd, out in the street, in the open. There is obviously some sort of a crowd because the text mentions a crowd later on. There is a crowd that has gathered, and in this crowd is a man who is a cripple. Now, Luke runs the risk of almost being redundant. Do you notice how he describes the cripple? He was sitting. He was lame in both his feet. He had no strength in his feet. He was lame from his mother's womb, and he had never walked. Now, there is almost no other way in the world that you could possibly describe a lame person than the four things that Luke just gave. He was sitting. He had no strength in his feet. He was lame from his mother's womb, and he never walked. Do you get the feeling that Luke is trying to tell us something? Going to great lengths to tell us something, isn't it? What is it? You want to take a guess? He was lame. In case you didn't catch it, he was lame. He couldn't walk either. And on top of all of that, he was lame from his mother womb, mother's womb. This was not somebody who could walk with some help. This was not somebody who could walk with a crutch or a cane. This is not somebody who could walk with great difficulty. This is somebody who from the moment he was born has never walked. His joints have never known the motion of walking. His muscles have never known what it is like to stand up. He has never stood a day in his life. That's what Luke is wanting, wanting us to understand. And Paul, in the preaching of the message to this crowd, he sees a man, this man in the crowd amongst the people, and he discerns, the text says, that this man has the faith to be made well, or to be saved, literally is the word that Luke uses. He has the faith to be saved. I don't think it's referring to spiritual salvation. I think it is referring, as it's translated, to being made well, to being saved from his physical affliction. This man obviously has heard enough from Paul to understand that if the message that Paul preaches is true, then there is a man whom Paul represents 
who had the power to do miracles, he had the power to raise the dead, he had the power to come back to life from the dead himself, and if the message that Paul preaches is true, if indeed Jesus is who Paul says he is, then he has the power to heal me as well. Paul is able in some way, don't ask me how, to discern that the man has faith enough to be made well. So look what says look what Luke says in verse 9. The man was listening to Paul as he spoke, and Paul fixed his eyes on him and saw that he had faith to be made well, and he said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. Now I assume that Paul said that loud, not because he was hard of hearing as well. He's only lame, not deaf. He says that loud enough that all of the crowd can hear the command that's been given to him. Paul doesn't whisper this to the man. He says it loud enough because Paul knows that when he gives this command, the man's going to be healed. And he wants all of the crowd to hear what it is that Paul has said to him. So looking intently at the man, Paul says, stand up on your feet. Now, does this whole miracle have a ring of familiarity to it, to you? It probably would. Do you remember a a similar incident in the book of Acts? Chapter 3, the beggar at the temple gate. Do you remember? But then it was Peter and John. Now, Luke is obviously intending for us to see the similarities between the two instances since he almost goes to great lengths to use the same words and the same phrases and to describe it the same way. It's not that Luke is mixed up and he can't remember who healed the beggar or where. It's that both the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter both had the ability to heal men and Luke is showing us what kind of miracles happened at his hands. In both instances, the men were lame. And Luke tells us in both instances, he emphasizes their lameness. They have never walked, either one of these men. In Acts chapter 3, the beggar at the gate. And in Acts chapter 14, this man in Lystra. Never walked, either one of them. Both of them are healed by an apostle. Both of them are healed by the spoken word. Both of them are healed immediately and they stand up. And you remember what Luke uh, Peter said to the man, silver and gold I don't have, but what I give to you, What I have I give to you in the name of Jesus, stand up and walk. And the man stood up and walked. And both of these instances give the apostles, in Acts chapter 3, Peter, and in here, Paul, the opportunity to proclaim the gospel. There's a lot of similarity here. But I want you to notice a few characteristics of what happens here that is sort of across the board in nearly every miracle that's recorded in the New Testament by Jesus and the apostles. They have these three characteristics. First of all, it is a public miracle. This didn't happen behind closed doors. Even when Jesus raised uh, Tabitha and he went behind the closed doors and just took Peter, James, and John with him and did that in private, that was a public miracle in that she walked out of the room and everybody saw what Jesus had done. This is a public miracle. Why is it public? Well, what's the purpose of miracles? Acts chapter 14, verse 3. To give testimony to the word of His grace. God was authenticating the message and the ministry of Paul And so he does so in a public way, as public as possible, so that everybody could see it. Out in front of everybody, he raises his voice, stand up and walk. And in the presence of this crowd, this man immediately stands up. It was a public miracle. Second, the healing was complete. He didn't hobble to his feet, grab a crutch, take a couple steps across the stage and say, I've been healed. Not at all. He stood up. Joints that have never known the motion of walking, now he walks. He doesn't have to learn the motor skills. He doesn't have to strengthen his legs. Paul doesn't say, okay, now you go to a physical therapist for a couple weeks and you use your crane and you claim your healing. You keep your faith quota up and pretty soon you're going to have your healing. Paul doesn't say that. Stand up and walk. And he stands up and he walks. 
as if he has been walking all of his life. It's a complete healing. Not a partial healing, a complete healing. And third, it's irrefutable. Everybody in the crowd can see what has happened, and you cannot question what has happened. This man has never walked a day in his life, and like all the other beggars of that time, he would have been dependent upon the generosity of other people around him for his means. He has no ability to work. He is dependent upon the alms and the gifts of people, maybe family members who have supported him. He has been in Lystra probably a long time. All of the people know him. They know of him. They're familiar with him. They see him begging all the time. They know he has never walked. And now he stands up and he walks. And nobody can refute this. You can bring 2020 or Nightline or 60 Minutes in to investigate it. You can interview his family physician. And nobody is going to cast doubt on the fact that this man has never walked and now he is able to walk as if he's been walking his whole life. It's irrefutable. You can't question it. Why was it irrefutable? Because God was giving testimony to the word of His grace by granting that signs and wonders be done by the hands of Paul and Barnabas. In Acts chapter 2, verse 43, it says there were signs and wonders taking place by the apostles. In Acts chapter 3, Luke tells us what kind of signs and wonders. And he gives us the healing of the man at the temple gate. Beautiful. In Acts chapter 14, verse 3, it says the Lord was giving testimony, granting that signs and wonders happen by their hands, Paul and Barnabas. Then he gives us this illustration to show us what kind of signs and wonders Paul was doing. He does this miracle. And everybody in Lystra, because it is public, because it is complete, and because it is irrefutable, they understand what has happened. They understand that divine power has been manifested in their midst. But the mistake that they make, and this is what leads to the mix-up, is they begin to interpret what they have seen in light of their paganism and their idolatry and their worldview, and that's where they get confused. So look at chapter 14. Let's take a look at this mix-up. It begins in verse 11. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they raised their voice, saying in the Lyconian language, the gods have become like men and have come down to us. Now why does Luke tell us that's in the Lyconian language? That's a significant detail. And the reason he mentions that is because he wants us to understand there's a reason why Paul and Barnabas didn't catch on to what was going on right away. Paul and Barnabas didn't understand the Lyconian dialect. Now, maybe they should have just spoken tongues and interpreted tongues, but they didn't do that on this occasion. They didn't have that. They had no interpreter as of yet. Fresh in the city, he heals this man, and they begin speaking in a Lyconian language, saying the gods have become like men and come down to us. It's interesting that Paul and Barnabas don't seem to catch on to what is going on until the priest of Zeus comes out with the oxen draped in the garland and gets ready to sacrifice to them. Look at verse 12. And they began calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles heard of it, they tore their robes and rushed out into the crowd, crying out. So it takes Paul and Barnabas a little while to figure out what's going on. Now, you say, this sounds like almost too superstitious, too ludicrous of a response to what they have seen. And you and I may not be able to understand exactly what it is, what it is that would cause such a response like this to be able to start worshiping the messenger. This has never happened anywhere else. It didn't happen in Jerusalem. They didn't worship the apostles. Why is it happening in Lystra? There's a reason for it. 
And it has to do with a, a local legend that was recorded by a Latin poet named Ovid. And writing only 50 years prior to this, he narrates for us a legend that was circulating in the whole area of Lystra, Derby, Antioch, Iconium, that whole southern Galatian region. Now, according to the local legend, Zeus, who was, he was Zeus to the Greeks, he was the Jupiter, God Jupiter, and Mercury, his son, who was Hermes to the Greeks, they had visited the Phrygian, the mountains in Phrygia years ago, disguised as men, so nobody knew who they were. And as the legend says, they went into the towns around there, into the surrounding region, and tried to seek hospitality from the people, but they were rebuffed and refused hospitality a thousand times. And according to legend, finally, there was this old couple named Philemon and Bacchus who were peasants. They were dirt poor. They showed hospitality to Zeus and to Hermes. And they brought them in, and out of their poverty, they demonstrated hospitality to them and provided for them graciously. And as a reward, Zeus and Hermes supposedly turned their little hovel of a cottage into a temple and appointed them priest and priestess for them in that temple. And then when they died, they became these majestic trees. And then on all of the people who had not shown them hospitality, Zeus and Hermes sent a devastating flood that destroyed their homes and wiped out the people. That was the legend that circulated around that area. Zeus and Hermes had been here in times past as men unrecognizable. And because of the people's inhospitality, they destroyed the people in the area. Now, they would have been familiar with the legend because these are the gods that they worshipped. So when Paul performs the miracle, what do they naturally think? They naturally think to themselves, Zeus and Hermes are back. And we're not going to make the same mistake that was made years, years, years ago. We're going to give them all of the respect, all of the hospitality that they deserve, that they look forward to, so that we don't get destroyed. So that is when the priest of Zeus rushes out to the temple to get the oxen. And they begin calling Paul Hermes and Barnabas they call Zeus. Now that seems like it would be the opposite of what we would expect. If Zeus is the supreme God and Hermes is the subordinate God, we would expect Paul to be called Zeus and Barnabas to be called Hermes, wouldn't we? That's what we would naturally expect. Paul is the leader. He is the speaker. He is the uncontested leader of the whole party. Barnabas, from their eyes, would be subordinate, not doing the speaking, because Luke says Paul was the chief speaker, which is why they called him Hermes. Why didn't they call Paul Zeus? He's the one who performed the miracle. He's the one that would should get the designation of the supreme God. I mean, if you're going to worship him, at least give him the status that I would give him if I were going to worship Paul. Call him Zeus. There's a reason for it. Hermes was the interpreter for the gods. He was the message deliverer in Greek mythology. He took the message that the gods wanted. He delivered it to the people as their spokesman. We get our word hermeneutics from it. Hermeneutics is the art and science of biblical interpretation. We take the message that God has given to us and we interpret it and understand what the original intent of the message is. That's hermeneutics. We get our word hermeneutics from Hermes. Paul is the message deliverer, the interpreter. So they say, well, he must be Hermes. And in Greek thinking, Zeus, as the supreme god, would sit back and he would let a subordinate god do all of his work for him. He would let a subordinate God do the miracles and do all the running around and take the leadership, and he was too good for any of that. So they, from their vantage point, they see Barnabas sort of sitting back, and Paul is taking the leadership role, so they assume if Paul is delivering the message, he's Hermes, Barnabas must be Zeus. And so they begin to ascribe to them these titles of deity, and the priest of the temple of Zeus understands, I have a responsibility that I better discharge quickly. 
The people are in a fever pitch. Zeus and Hermes are here with us, before us. We need to sacrifice to them. So he rushes to the temple and he grabs a couple of oxen and I'm assuming he would have grabbed all of the implements for sacrificing the oxen, the the incense and the knives and all of the stuff that would be needed with that. He drapes the oxen with the garland and brings them out to the gate and it is then that Paul and Barnabas understand what is happening. They healed the man and there has been a ruckus in the crowd ever since. Shouting and leaping up and people rushing off and saying, I need to go get my wife and kids. Zeus and Hermes are here. They need to see this. And so people are rushing about and there is all of this pandemonium. Paul and Barnabas don't understand the Lyconian language. They they understand why people would be so upset. But it is not until the priest of Zeus comes out with his oxen ready to sacrifice, picks up the knife and is ready to slay them for Zeus and Hermes that Paul and Barnabas clue into what's going on. And they rush out into the crowd And this mix-up gives Paul an opportunity to preach the Gospel to them. Now look at how different this is from what they had just experienced in Iconium. You notice that? In Iconium, people wanted them dead. In Lystra, they want oxen dead to sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas. In Iconium, they tried to stone them. In Lystra, they tried to worship them. In Iconium, they treated them like they are devils in Lystra, they're treating them like they are gods. Talk about a roller coaster ride of emotion. Paul could expect to be beaten and harassed and opposed and hated and hunted and plots against his life. All of that he would expect. But to be worshipped as a god? And notice the distress. They tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd. Tearing the clothes was a Jewish way of symbolizing emotional distress and emotional torment and frustration over something or anguish of soul. They tear their clothes. I'm not going to demonstrate it for you, but you get the idea what it is. They tear their clothes and rush out into the crowd. Jews went through a lot of clothes in Bible times. Every time they got distressed, they tore their clothes. Rushed out into the crowd and Paul delivers his message. Now we've looked at the miracle. We've looked at this mix-up. Now I want you to take a look at the message that the Apostle Paul delivers on this occasion. Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of the same nature as you and we preach the Gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In the generations gone by, He permitted all the nations to go their own ways and yet He did not leave Himself without witness in that He did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even saying these things with difficulty, they restrained the crowds from offering sacrifices to them. The Apostle Paul rushes out and he did what Peter did on a previous occasion. Do you remember how Peter was worshipped as well? Acts chapter 10, in the home of Cornelius, he walked in. Cornelius fell down and started to worship him. And Peter says, stand up, I'm a man just like you. Here Paul does the same thing. Rushing out into the crowds. Why are you doing this? We're men of the same nature as you. We're not special. Now, if Paul wanted to be worshipped and adored, if he was after the, the adulations and the praise of men, this would have been a perfect stop for the Apostle Paul to stay right here in Lystra and to say, yep, that's right. Every need he ever wanted would have been met. But Paul's too humble for that. And Paul understands that if he had accepted this worship from these people, he would have been no better than Herod Agrippa. Do you remember what happened to him? Acts chapter 12. He didn't give God glory. and He was eaten by worms. And he accepted when the people said the voice of a God and not of a man. And God struck him dead. And he was eaten by worms and he died. The Apostle Paul's in torment over this. 
This is anguish of soul that these people would look to Him as something more than He is. We are of men of the same nature as you. And we preach the Gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things. The oxen, the priests, the sacrifices, the temple, all of your myths, all of your legends, it's emptiness. The Apostle Paul says you have missed it. All of this is empty. It's vain. It's of no use whatsoever. What were they doing? They were worshiping idols. They were worshiping and serving the creature, the created thing, rather than the creator. And so Paul begins this message by pointing out his own similarity in nature with them. We're of the same nature as you. Now you're going to notice something different about this message as opposed to the one in Acts chapter 13. You'll notice it's shorter. Several verses shorter. It's a shorter message, but that's not the most significant detail. The most significant difference is that there are no lengthy quotations of the Old Testament. There's no reference to the law of Moses. There's no reference to the nation of Israel, to the history of the nation of Israel, to the prophets, to the law, to any of the rituals, any of that. Paul doesn't mention any of that. Why is that? Who is he speaking to? Jews? Paul doesn't begin with the history of the nation of Israel. He goes back farther than that. He takes them all the way back to creation. And he talks about the God who is the Creator. With the Jews, they understood who God was. They understood where God had revealed Himself in the Old Testament Scriptures. They understood how God worked, what He had promised. So Paul begins with the Jews on that basis and says, here's what you don't understand, that the God who has revealed Himself in creation now has revealed Himself in Christ who died for you and rose again, and he would preach the gospel from the Old Testament law and the prophets, something that they accepted. He doesn't have that common ground with these pagans. With these pagans, he has no common ground in the Old Testament. He could start and just say, hey, Jesus loves you and died for you. Huh? Jesus who? Well, God loves you. Well, we know Zeus loves us. No, 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 my God loves you. Oh, well, who's your God? Which God is your God? You see, he has no common ground. So what does he do? He goes all the way back to creation. Takes him back to the very beginning. In order that he may start there and bring them to Christ. Friends, several years ago, well, probably almost a hundred years ago, we had a way of thinking in our country, in our society, that recognized the authority of Scripture, the authority of who God was, and the whole Christian, Judeo-Christian worldview that informed our society, our culture, our morals, and our understanding. We don't have that anymore. The lie of evolution has taught our entire society that you can exist completely without God. So now when we share Christ with people, we need to almost take them back to the beginning and mention the fact that God is the Creator. And that because He is the Creator, He has jurisdiction over your soul. And you will be responsible to Him again someday. Paul begins not with the Jews, not with the nation of Israel. He takes them back to creation. Look what he says in verse... Uh, 15, we preach the gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. He populated heaven with angels. He populated the sky with birds. He populated the seas with fish. And He populated the lands with men and animals. This is the God who was in the beginning who spoke and the limitless galaxies leapt into existence. This is the God who by the word of His mouth created and upholds all things. So Paul is distinguishing the God that he's delivering the message for from these vain gods Hermes and Jupiter and Mercury and all of the Greek pagan idols that they've been worshiping. He wants them to understand it begins with creation. And this God who created all things is the God who will hold you accountable on Judgment Day for what you have done with Christ. 
He filled the earth and the heavens and made all that is in them. And generations gone by, He permitted all the nations to go their own ways. There was a time when God did not intervene. He let all of the nations pursue their ungodliness. He let them pursue their wickedness. He let them pursue their natural inclinations and their drives and all of their idolatry and their paganisms and their myths and their superstitions. But Paul says the time has come. That's that's over. In times past, Paul says in Acts chapter 17, God overlooked the times of ignorance, but now He calls all men everywhere to repent. For a time, God let the nations go their own ways. The time has ended. Now God is calling all nations, Jew and Gentile, everybody, to return to Him. Now they may ask, well, who is this God? And if this God exists, then how has He revealed Himself? He certainly hasn't revealed Himself to us. Now Paul could go back and say, well, yeah, but He revealed Himself to the Jews in the Old Testament. But He doesn't do that. He stays with creation. And look what the Apostle Paul says. God did not leave Himself without witness, verse 17, in that He did good and He gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your heart with good and with gladness. Look at what God has done for you. You enjoy good things from His hand. You enjoy the abundant produce of the land. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. He provides for your every need and He has done all of this and it is a witness and a testimony. In other words, the Apostle Paul is saying what he did in Romans chapter 1. God has revealed enough of Himself in creation to hold you accountable. He has not left Himself without witness. You can look out at what has been created. You can look at what has been provided for you and God will hold you accountable for your sin on the basis of what has been created around you. This whole message sounds like the first two or three chapters of the book of Romans. Paul says, The invisible attributes of God are seen in the things that are made, so that men are without excuse. You can't stand there and say, Well, we never knew. We never had grounds to believe in you. Paul's saying, You do know. But you've taken the truth that God has revealed in creation and that truth that you know instinctively from creation and from your conscience, and you have suppressed it in righteousness. In Romans chapter 2, the apostle says the goodness of God should lead you to repentance. But it doesn't. In the unrepentant hardness of your depraved, sinful heart, you store up for yourselves wrath for the day of judgment. You have no excuse to say, well, we didn't know. So Paul is starting a creation, and he's bringing them up and pointing them to Christ. Do you know that God provides good things for the atheist as well as the believer? That's what he says. He's provided you goodness, satisfying your heart with food and with gladness. The atheist enjoys life. The atheist gets to sit down and eat a plate of lobster or have some of that good Indian missionary goulash. The atheist gets to enjoy all of that as well as the believer. God provides both the righteous and the unrighteous with rain. Folks, when it rains on my house... It rains on my neighbor's house as well. And I get rain for my garden, and my neighbor gets rain for his garden. He doesn't know the Lord. Yet God has not left Himself without testimony. He shows His goodness every day in the things that are made, providing for everybody, believer and unbeliever, pagan and idolater, as well as the believing righteous man, goodness and grace and joy and gladness. And that should drive us to repentance. But it doesn't. Man in the wickedness of his heart suppresses the truth and unrighteousness. So look what Paul says. Or look what Luke says in verse 18. Even saying these things with difficulty, they restrained the crowds from sacrificing to them. Paul and Barnabas couldn't just get up and deliver this and then the crowd say, oh, well, we understand. Okay, let's take the oxen back. They didn't do that. The crowd was intent on sacrificing these oxen to Paul and to Barnabas. 
and to offer to them praise and worship and adoration. And even in delivering this message and trying to point them to Christ, the crowds were intent on worshiping them. And with great difficulty, they restrained the crowds. Isn't that bizarre? Isn't that utterly bizarre? Can you imagine preaching the gospel to somebody and having them turn around and, and worship you? Yeah, that's what Paul faced. That's only the second of three very bizarre things. I want you to follow the roller coaster with me for a second. In Iconium, they're almost stoned. They come to Lystra and they're worshipped. Now, you know things have got to get worse from being worshipped, right? That's in verse 19. And we'll look at the third very bizarre thing that happens to the Apostle Paul next week. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the truth of it, for the lessons of it. And we pray, God, that You would use Your Word to equip us to share Christ with our pagan neighbors, our pagan culture, and those who do not recognize You as Creator and as Lord and as God. We thank You for Your grace to us, which we enjoy each and every day, the goodness that You rain down upon us. And we pray that You would continue to use that goodness to drive us to repentance and worship and praise and adoration of You. We thank You in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.